Greetings, Detective. Welcome to the Murder Mystery Company in our new free service, Calm Mystery. We know that many of you need that calm and centered moment, but meditation isn't necessarily your thing. If you're a mystery lover, a crime fan, and could use a break, you've come to the right place. It sure is a suspenseful world out there, but I have good news for you. In this world, the only suspense will come from the world's best writers. For the next few minutes, we're going to close the door on the outside world. First, find a comfortable chair, sofa, or bed. Take a moment to just relax into that spot. Let your body sink in, slowly releasing the day's tension. Just relax. You've earned this time. You need this time for you. Your body will thank you. Now let's take a moment to clear your mind. I want you to focus on two things. My voice and your breathing. Take a deep breath in through your nose. Let it out slowly through your mouth. Now the same thing, but let's breathe on my count. Three counts in and four counts out. Breathe in. One, two, three. Now out. One, two, three, four. As we do this, you're going to slowly relax more and be perfectly ready for tonight's dastardly tale. Now again, breathe in. One, two, three. Now out. One, two, three, four. One more time, breathing out the last bit of stress. Breathe in, one, two, three. Now out, one, two, three, four. Excellent. Tonight's tale of mystery, intrigue, and murder is truly spine-tingling. Welcome to Calm Mystery. Our selection this time, The Rope of Fear by Mary E. and Thomas W. Hanshu. Read by Perry F. Bruns. Part 1. If you know anything of the county of Westmoreland, you will know the chief market town of Merton Shepherd. And if you know Merton Shepherd, you will know there is only one important building in that town besides the massive town hall. And that building is the Westmoreland Union Bank, a private concern well backed by every wealthy magnate in the surrounding district, and patronized by everyone from the highest to the lowest degree. Anybody will point the building out to you, firstly because of its imposing exterior, and secondly because everyone in the whole county brings his money to Mr. Naylor Brent to do with it what he wills. For Mr. Naylor Brent is the manager, and besides being known far and wide for his integrity, 
his uprightness of purpose, and his strict sense of justice. He acts to the poorer inhabitants of Merton Shepherd as a sort of father-confessor in all their troubles, both of a social and a financial character. It was toward the last of September that the big robbery happened, and upon one sunny afternoon at the end of that month, Mr. Naylor Brent was pacing the narrow confines of his handsomely appointed room in the bank, visibly disturbed. That he was awaiting the arrival of someone was evident by his frequent glances at the marble clock which stood upon the mantel-shelf, and which bore across its base a silver plate, upon which were inscribed the names of some fifteen or more grateful customers, whose money had passed successfully through his managerial hands. At length the door opened, after a discreet knock upon its oaken panels, and an old, bent, and almost decrepit clerk ushered in the portly figure of Mr. Maverick Narcom, superintendent of Scotland Yard, followed by a heavily built, dull-looking person in navy blue. Mr. Naylor Brent's good-looking, rugged face took on an expression of the keenest relief. "'Mr. Narkom himself! This is indeed more than I expected,' he said with extended hand. "'We had the pleasure of meeting once in London some years ago. Perhaps you have forgotten.' Mr. Narkom's bland face wrinkled into a smile of appreciation. "'Oh, no, I haven't,' he returned pleasantly. "'I remember quite distinctly. I decided to answer your letter in person and bring with me one of my best men.' "'Friend and colleague, you know, Mr. George Headland. "'Pleased to meet you, sir. "'And if you'll both sit down, we can go into the matter at once. "'That's a comfortable chair over there, Mr. Headland.' "'They seated themselves, and Mr. Narkom, clearing his throat, "'proceeded in his usual official manner to take the floor. "'I understand from headquarters,' said he, that you have had an exceptionally large deposit of banknotes sent up from London for payments in connection with your new canal. Isn't that so, Mr. Brent? I trust the trouble you mentioned in your letter has nothing to do with this money. Mr. Naylor Brent's face paled considerably, and his voice had an anxious note in it when he spoke. Gad, sir, but it has, he ejaculated. That's the trouble itself. Every single banknote is gone. Two hundred thousand pounds is gone, and not a trace of it. Heaven only knows what I'm going to do about it, Mr. Narkom, but that's how the matter stands. Every penny is gone. Gone? Mr. Narkom drew out a red silk handkerchief and wiped his forehead vigorously, a sure sign of nervous excitement, while Mr. Hedlund exclaimed loudly, Well, I'm hanged. Someone certainly will be, rapped out Mr. Brent sharply, for not only have the notes vanished, but I've lost the best night watchman I ever had. A good, trustworthy man. Lost him? put in Mr. Hedlund curiously. What exactly do you mean by that, Mr. Brent? Did he vanish with the notes? What? Will Simmons? Never in this world. He's not that kind. The man that offered Will Simmons a bribe to betray his trust would answer for it with his life. A more faithful servant or better fellow never drew breath. "'No, it's dead he is, Mr. Hedland, and I can hardly speak of it yet. "'I feel so much to blame for putting him on the job at all. "'But you see, we've had a regular series of petty thefts lately, 
small sums unable to be accounted for, safes open in the most mysterious manner, and money abstracted, though never any large sums, fortunately. Even the clerk's coats had not been left untouched. I have had a constant watch kept, but all in vain. So naturally, when this big deposit came to hand on Tuesday morning, I determined that special precaution should be taken at night, and put poor old Simmons down in the vault with the bank's watchdog for company. That was the last time I saw him alive. He was found writhing in convulsions, and by the time that the doctor arrived on the scene he was dead. The safe was found open, and every note was gone. "'Bad business, indeed,' declared Mr. Headland, with a shake of the head. "'No ideas to the cause of death, Mr. Brent. What was the doctor's verdict?' Mr. Naylor Brent's face clouded. "'That's the very dickens of it. He didn't quite know. Said it was evidently a case of poisoning, but was unable to decide further or to find out what sort of poison, if any, had been used. Hmm, I see. And what did the local police say? Had they found any clues yet?' The manager flushed and gave vent to a forced laugh. "'As a matter of fact,' he responded. The local police know nothing about it. I have kept the loss an entire secret until I could call in the help of Scotland Yard. A secret, Mr. Brent, with such a loss, ejaculated Mr. Narkom. That's surely an unusual cause to pursue. When a bank loses such a large sum of money, and in banknotes, the most easily handled commodity in the world, and in addition a mysterious murder takes place, one would naturally expect that the first act would be to call in the officers of the law. That is, unless... I see. Well, it's more than I do, responded Mr. Brent sadly. Do you see any light, however? Hardly that. But it stands to reason that if you are prepared to make good the loss, a course to which there seems no alternative... There is an obvious possibility that you yourself have some faint idea as to who the criminal is, and are anxious that your suspicion should not be verified. Mr. Headland, otherwise Cleek, looked at his friend with considerable admiration shining in his eyes. Beginning to use his old head at last, he thought as he watched the superintendent's keen face. Well, well, it's never too late to mend, anyhow. And then aloud, Exactly my thought, Mr. Narkom. Perhaps Mr. Brent could enlighten us as to his own suspicions, for I am positive that he has some tucked away somewhere in his mind. Jove, if you're not almost supernatural, Mr. Headland, returned that gentleman with a heavy sigh, you have certainly unearthed something which I thought was hidden only in my own soul. That is exactly the reason I have kept silent. My suspicions, were I to voice them, might, uh drag the person accused still deeper into the mire of his own foolishness. There's Patterson, for instance. He would arrest him on sight without the slightest compunction. Patterson? threw in Cleek quickly. Patterson? The name's familiar. Don't suppose, though, that it would be the same one. It is a common enough name. Company promoter who made a pile on copper the first year of the war, and retired with the swag to put it brutally. "'Tisn't that chap, I suppose. The identical man,' returned Mr. Brent excitedly. "'He came here some five years ago, 
bought up Mount Morris Court, a fine place having a view of the whole town, and has lately started to run an opposition bank to ours, doing everything in his power to overthrow my position here. It's... it's spite, I believe, against myself as well as George. The young fool had the impudence to ask his daughter's hand, and, what was more, ran off with her, and they were married, which increased Patterson's hatred of us both almost to insanity. Hmm, I see, said Cleek. Who is George? My stepson, Mr. Headland, unfortunately for me. My late wife's boy by her first marriage. I have to admit it regretfully enough. He was the cause of his mother's death. He literally broke her heart by his wild living, and I was only too glad to give him a small allowance, which, however, helped him with his unhappy marriage, and hoped to see the last of George Barrington. Cleek twitched up an inquiring eyebrow. Unhappy, Mr. Brent, he queried. But I understood from you a moment ago it was a love match. In the beginning it was purely a question of love, Mr. Headland, responded the manager gravely. But as you know, when poverty comes in at the door, love sometimes flies out of the window, and from all accounts the late Miss Patterson never ceases to regret the day she became Mrs. George Barrington. George has been hanging about here this last week or two, and I noticed him trying to renew acquaintance with old Simmons only a day or two ago in the bar of the Rose and Anchor. He... he was also seen prowling round the bank on Tuesday night. So now you know why I was loath to set the ball rolling. Old man Patterson would lift the sky to get the chance to have that young waster imprisoned, to say nothing of defaming my personal character at the same time. Sooner than that I must endeavour to raise sufficient money by private means to replace the notes. But the death of old Simmons is, of course, another matter. His murderer must and shall be brought to justice while I have a penny piece in my pocket. His voice broke suddenly into a harsh sob, and for a moment his hands covered his face. Then he shook himself free of his emotion. "'We will all do our best on that score, Mr. Brent,' said Mr. Narkom, after a somewhat lengthy silence. "'It is a most unfortunate tragedy, indeed. Almost a dual one, one might say. But I think you can safely trust yourselves in our hands, eh, Headland?' Cleek bowed his head while Mr. Brent smiled appreciation of the superintendent's kindly sympathy. "'I know I can,' he said warmly. "'Believe me, Mr. Narkom, and you too, Mr. Headland. I am perfectly content to leave myself with you. But I have my suspicions, and strong ones they are too, and I would not mind laying a bet that Patterson has engineered the whole scheme and is quietly laughing up his sleeve at me.' "'That's a bold assertion, Mr. Brent,' put in Cleek quietly. "'But justified by facts, Mr. Headland. "'He has twice tried to bribe Simmons away from me, "'and last year offered Colcott, my head clerk, "'a sum of five thousand pounds to let him have the list of our clients.' "'Oh-ho!' said Cleek in two different tones. "'One of that sort, is he? "'Not content with a fortune won by profiteering, "'he must try and ruin others.' and having failed to get hold of your list of clients, he tries the bogus theft game and gambles on that. Hmm. Well, young Barrington may be only a coincidence after all, Mr. Brent. I shouldn't worry too much about him if I were you. Suppose you tell Mr. Narkom and myself the details, 
Right from the beginning, please. When was the murder discovered, and who discovered it? Mr. Naylor Brent leaned back in his chair and sighed heavily as he polished his gold glasses. For an affair of such tragic importance, Mr. Headland, it is singularly lacking in details. There is really nothing more to tell you than that at six o'clock, when I myself retired from the bank to my private rooms overhead, I left poor Simmons on guard over the safe. At nine o'clock I was fetched down by the inspector on the beat, who had left young Wilson with the body. After that, Cleek lifted a silencing hand. One moment, he said. Who is young Wilson, Mr. Brent? And why should he, instead of the inspector, have been left alone with the body? Wilson is one of the cashiers, Mr. Headland, a nice lad, but of no particular education. It seems he found the bank's outer door unlatched, and called up the constable on the beat. As luck would have it, the inspector happened along, and down they went into the vaults together. But as to why the inspector left young Wilson with the body instead of sending him up for me, well, frankly, I had never given the thing a thought until now. I see. Funny thing this chap Wilson should have made straight for the vaults, though. Did he expect a murder or robbery beforehand? Was he acquainted with the fact that the notes were there, Mr. Brent? No. He knew nothing whatever about them. No one did. That is, no one but the head clerk, Mr. Calcott, myself, and old Simmons. In bank matters you know the less said about such things the better, and— Mr. Narkom nodded. Very wise, very wise indeed he said approvingly. One can't be too careful in money matters, and if I may say so, bank pay being none too high, the temptation must sometimes be rather great. I have a couple of nephews in the bank myself. Cleek's eyes suddenly silenced him as though there had been a spoken word. This Wilson, Mr. Brent, Cleek asked quietly, is he a young man? Oh, quite young. Not more than four or five and twenty, I should say. Came from London with an excellent reference, and so far has given every satisfaction. Universal favourite with the firm, and also with old Simmons himself. I believe the two used sometimes to lunch together, and were firm friends. It seems almost a coincidence that the old man should have died in the boy's arms. He made no statement, I suppose, before he died, to give an idea of the assassin— but of course you wouldn't know that, as you weren't there. As it happens, I do, Mr. Headland. Young Wilson, who is frightfully upset. In fact, the shock of the thing has completely shattered his nerves, never very strong at the best of times, says that the old man just writhed and writhed and muttered something about a rope. Then he fell back dead. A rope? said Cleek in surprise. Was he tied or bound, then? That's just it. There was no sign of anything whatever to do with a rope about him. It was possibly a death delusion or something of the sort. Perhaps the old chap was semi-conscious. Undoubtedly. And now just one more question, Mr. Brent, before I tire your patience out. We policemen, you know, are terrible nuisances. What time was it when young Wilson discovered the door of the bank unlatched? About half-past nine. I had just noticed my clock striking the half-hour when I was disturbed by the inspector, and wasn't it a bit unusual for a clerk to come back to the bank at that hour? Unless he was working overtime. 
Mr. Naylor Brent's fine head went back with a gesture which conveyed to Cleek the knowledge that he was not in a habit of working any of his employees beyond the given hours. "'He was doing nothing of the sort, Mr. Headland,' he responded a trifle brusquely. "'Our firm is particularly keen about the question of working hours. Wilson tells me he came back for his watch, which he left behind him, and—' "'And the door was conveniently unlatched and ready. "'So he simply fetched in the inspector and took him straight down into the vaults. "'Didn't get his watch, I suppose?' Mr. Naylor Brent jumped suddenly to his feet, all his self-possession gone for the moment. "'Gad, I never thought of that!' "'Hang it! Man, you're making a bigger puzzle of it than ever. "'You're not insinuating that the boy murdered old Simmons, are you? "'I can't believe that.' "'I'm not insinuating anything,' responded Cleek blandly. "'But I have to look at things from every single angle there is. "'When you got downstairs with the inspector, Mr. Brent, "'did you happen to notice the safe or not?' "'Yes, I did. "'Indeed, I fear that was my first thought.' It was natural, with two hundred thousand pounds Bank of England notes to be responsible for, and at first I thought everything was all right. Then young Wilson told me that he himself had closed the safe door. What are you smiling at, Mr. Headland? It's no laughing matter, I assure you. The queer little one-sided smile, so indicative of the man, travelled for a moment up Cleek's cheek and was gone again in a twinkling. Nothing! he responded briefly. Just a passing thought. Then you mean to say young Wilson closed the safe? Did he know the notes had vanished? But of course you said he knew nothing of them. But if they were there when he looked in... His voice trailed off into silence, and he let the rest of the sentence go by default. Mr. Brent's face flushed crimson with excitement. Why, at that rate... He ejaculated. The money wasn't stolen until young Wilson sent the inspector up for me, and we let him walk quietly out. You were right, Mr. Headland. If I had only done my duty and told Inspector Cochrane at once— Steady, man, steady. I don't say it is so, put in Cleek with a quiet little smile. I'm only trying to find light, and making it a dash at sight blacker still, begging your pardon— returned Mr. Brent briskly. That's as may be. But the devil isn't always as black as he is painted, responded Cleek. I'd like to see this Wilson, Mr. Brent. Unless he is so ill, he hasn't been able to attend the office. Oh, he's back at work today, and I'll have him here in a twinkling. And almost in a twinkling he arrived. A young, slim, pallid youngster, rather given to over-brightness in his choice of ties, and somewhat better dressed than is the lot of most bank clerks. Cleek noted the pearl pin, the well-cut suit he wore, and for a moment his face wore a strange look. Mr. Naylor Brent's brisk voice broke the silence. "'These gentlemen are from Scotland Yard, Wilson,' he said sharply, "'and they want to know just what happened here on Tuesday night. Tell them all you know, please.' That's the end of Part 1 of The Rope of Fear by Mary E. and Thomas W. Hanshew. Calm Mystery is a Murder Mystery Company production. Scott Crampton, Executive Producer. Our Editor is Audra Schildhaus. 
Join us next time to find out just what Young Wilson knows. In the meantime, be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to Calm Mystery wherever you get your podcasts. And share us with a dear friend or enemy. Until next time, stay calm. Mystery is everywhere. Thank you for listening to Calm Mystery, a Murder Mystery Company production. To solve your own case with us, visit MurderMysteryZoomParty.com, all one word, and use code CALM, C-A-L-M, for $20 off your own murder mystery party. We have dozens of entertaining detectives. You can even ask for me, Perry, by name. If no one else can help, and if they can find me, maybe I can help you become Detective of the Night. That's MurderMysteryZoomParty.com, all one word, code CALM.